All right, let's go ahead and open with prayer, and then we'll jump into our text this morning. Uh, Merciful Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the beautiful sun outside. Thank you for calling us to yourself in this place. Thank you for having pity on us when we weren't your people and making us your people and uniting us under your gracious and good rule and our King Jesus. It's in his name that we praise you and ask for your blessing on this time together. In his name we pray. Amen. All right, so I think some of you know this, but my wife and I were high school sweethearts, which meant we dated through college, and I was a year ahead of her in school. So as she was finishing up her degree in elementary education, I was working, and we were busy planning for our wedding, and so the late spring, early summer of 2002 was a very hectic time for us. She graduated in May, we got married in June, and then we packed up the U-Haul and headed to Arizona for graduate school in July. So it was kind of boom, boom, boom. And I was going to be a full-time student. I ended up working uh, at the university while I was there, but that was not lined up initially. So we were relying on Stephanie and her teaching out in Arizona to provide the funds for just living, for life. And so she had started applying to some school districts before we moved down there. She continued to apply and look for work once we arrived. But there was nothing. We weren't getting any bites, hardly a call back. And so we were starting to stress just a little bit, like, what is going to happen? I mean, Stephanie is picturing, picturing us destitute and out on the street from our apartments in, in short order. I'm thinking, the student loans are only going to go so far, so how are we going to pay for this? And she had an interview with the Tempe School District the Friday before school started for the little ones. And it was later in the afternoon. She goes, interview went great, and at the end they said, well, thanks for coming in. We're not sure we're even going to create the position, but we appreciate your time. So she's kind of just dumbfounded at that, comes home a little weepy, worried about what's going to happen. So we then grab her resume and drive around for the couple of hours that were left that Friday afternoon, just putting in applications for substitute teaching positions, just to get something. So we got a call, I think, just a little bit before 6 p.m. from that Tempe school district saying, hey, we've decided to hire you. You, Can you start on Monday? I'm like, yeah, sure. And the pay was great, and the Lord mercifully provided for us. But in that time, especially those couple hours where we were driving around just trying to hand out resumes for substitute teaching gigs, we didn't know how this thing was going to play out. We knew that I had been admitted to graduate school. It seemed like the Lord was greasing the skids for a specific career path for me, but we didn't have all the details worked out. And so there was real stress and tension in our life when we moved down to Arizona. But we trusted the Lord to provide because we knew that he is faithful. Just had no clue how that was actually going to happen. And I know some, if not all of you in this room, have similar stories of God's gracious provision in your lives in times where you didn't know how it was going to turn out in your favor. So I want you to keep that, your own experiences in mind as we read through 2 Samuel 10. This is an interesting passage which, at first blush, doesn't seem to present us with a lot of meat. But as we get in, I think you'll agree with me, it's totally, totally contrary to that idea that there is some meaty, meaty, deep theological insights here. So, uh, you've got the handouts if you have your Bible, 2 Samuel 10. Pick up in verse 1. After this, the king of the Ammonites died, and Hanan his son reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal loyally with Hanan the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. So David sent by his servants to console him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. But the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanan their lord, 
Do you think because David has sent comforters to you that he is honoring your father? Has not David sent his servants to you to search the city and to spy it out and to overthrow it? So Hanan took David's servants and shaved off half the beard of each and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. When it was told David, he sent to meet them, for the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, Remain at Jericho until your beards have grown, and then return. And when the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David, the Ammonites sent and hired the Syrians of Beth-Rehob and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and the king of Maacah with 1,000 men, and the men of Tob, 12,000 men. And when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the hosts of the mighty men. And the Ammonites came out and drew up in battle, uh, in battle array at the entrance of the gate. And the Syrians of Zobah and Rehob and the men of Tob and Maacah were by themselves in the open country. When Joab saw that the battle was set against him, both in front and in the rear, he chose some of the best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrians. The rest of his men he put in charge of Abishai, his brother, and he arrayed them against the Ammonites. And he said, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Be of good courage, and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God, and may the Lord do what seems good to him. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near to the battle against the Syrians, and they fled before him. And when the Ammonites saw that the Syrians had fled, they likewise fled before Abishai and entered the city. Then Joab returned from fighting against the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. But when the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered themselves together and had Adizer sent and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the Euphrates. They came to Helam with Shobach, the commander of the army of Hadadezer, their head. And when it was told David, he gathered all Israel together and crossed the Jordan and came to Helam. The Syrians arrayed themselves against David and fought with him. And the Syrians fled before Israel, and David killed of the Syrians the men of 700 chariots and 40,000 horsemen, and wounded Shobach, the commander of their army, so that he died there. And when all the kings who were the servants of Hadadezer saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and became subject to them. So the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. All right, so when we read something like this, what do we make of a passage like 2 Samuel 10? Because like I said, at first blush, it doesn't appear to contain much meat besides that funny story right at the beginning. Funny, awkward, embarrassing, I don't know, how would you qualify that? But it comes after chapters 8 and 9, where David has subdued the Philistines, and he shows kindness to the remnant of Saul's house, which puts a nice bow on that chapter in Israel's history. And it comes before chapters 11 and 12 when we get to the sordid details of David and Bathsheba, and there's a lot there to dive into. So it would be easy to gloss over chapter 10 and see it as more of a bridge between these two important chapters in David's life. And it does serve that purpose for the author. But we can't forget the care that the author of Samuel has taken to this point in crafting his story. He hasn't wasted words, he hasn't wasted any movements, and he's employed some really good artistry here. So, this chapter may seem like little more than a humorous anecdote followed by a bland retelling of an Israelite military victory, but if we look more closely, there are some rich truths here to comfort God's people, you and me, in the midst of our trials. And this is going to drive us to the main idea that the Lord is good, and he will do what he thinks is good. The Lord is good, and he will do what he thinks is good. So here's our outline. We're going to break it into three chunks. Verses 1 through 7, which outline a king's rebellion. Verses 8 through 14, a murderer's theology. 
and verses 15 through 19, the subjection of the nations. So a king's rebellion, a murderer's theology, and the subjection of the nations. So first, verses 1 through 7. What is the event that kicks off our chapter? What happens? Pardon? The king of the Ammonites died. So who is this king? Who is Nahash? Well, he actually appears in 1 Samuel 11. So I'm going to read just the first couple verses so you get an idea of who this guy is. Then Nahash, the Ammonite, went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us and we will serve you. But Nahash, the Ammonite, said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you that I gouge out all of your right eyes and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days respite that we may send messengers throughout all the territory of Israel. Then, if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all Israel wept aloud. So what follows from there is that uh, Saul takes up the cause, the Spirit of God rushes upon him, and he delivers the men of Jabesh-Gilead from the Ammonites. But reading that, does it sound like Nahash is a good guy, an ally of Israel? Not exactly, right? It's, it's not a flattering picture of the man. He wants to humiliate and maim Israelites. And the Ammonites are not described within the scriptures as historically friendly toward Israel at all. So it's possible that Nahash assisted David while he was in the wilderness running from Saul, but any commentator that puts that forward is really just speculating. It's conjecture, and the biblical record doesn't really indicate that that's the case. So how are we to interpret the words of David when he says, I will deal loyally with Hanan, the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me? Well, we have to remember what precedes this story, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 10. So who did David show kindness toward in chapter 9? Do you recall? It's been a couple weeks, but do you recall? Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth. Okay, and who is Mephibosheth? Jonathan's son, the grandson of Saul. And if you remember the words that David used there, he calls, brings Mephibosheth in before him, and he says, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. That word kindness in describing his interactions with Mephibosheth is the Hebrew word hesed. And David shows the descendant of Saul, his domestic enemy, covenantal loyalty and faithfulness. He shows, them, he shows him hesed. And now this is the exact same word that's used here in verse 2 when the text reads, I will deal loyally with Hanan. He's also going to show covenantal faithfulness now to his foreign enemies. He showed it first to his domestic enemies, now to his foreign enemies. And critical scholars and maybe the cynical among us might say that David's just politically savvy. He's a smooth operator, so he's extended mercy and kindness to Mephibosheth just in a shrewd move to unite Israel. And now he's sending these envoys to Hanan in an effort to form a foreign alliance and just further strengthen his kingdom. But that is a deeply, deeply cynical reading of the scripture because we know that 2 Samuel isn't just a retelling of Israel's history. This is not just a pro-David narrative in the hands of an Israelite. The whole of Scripture points to the Lord Jesus Christ. So this text is saying something deeply profound about Israel's king. At this point in our story, the Lord's anointed has ascended his throne. He's defeating all of his enemies. And now he's bestowing hesed, that loving kindness, his covenantal faithfulness toward all his enemies. 
He's on his throne, defeating his enemies, and showing covenantal faithfulness to everyone who has been an enemy to him at this point. So the author is telling us in chapter 9 and chapter 10 that covenantal faithfulness towards his enemies will be a defining characteristic of Israel's king. Let me say that again, because it's so important. The author is telling us, in, first in chapter 9 and now in chapter 10, that covenantal faithfulness, extending hesed towards his enemies, will be a defining characteristic of Israel's king. But let's look at the Ammonite response now. First, what do the princes or commanders of the Ammonites say to their king? What's their reaction? Do they believe that this is legit? No. Deeply skeptical. Suspicion, distrust of David's motives. They tell Hanan that David isn't trustworthy. He doesn't intend to comfort, but instead will crush Hanan and the Ammonites. And distrust seems to be the spirit of the age here in the text, because if you remember just a few chapters ago, 2 Samuel 3, after Abner met with David to make peace on that faction of Saul's house, uh, and David sent him away in peace, Joab comes in and says, what are you doing? Abner wasn't here to make peace. He came in to deceive you, to know you're going out and you're coming in to know everything that you're doing. So it's, it's in the spirit of the text right now. Nobody trusts anybody. But there's also faint echoes of the garden here, isn't there? You can hear the princes whispering to Hanan, does Israel's king really have your best interests at heart? He's holding back his true intentions from you. He actually has evil planned for you. So what does Hanan do to David's men in response? Two things. What do we read? Shaved half their beards and exposes their buttocks in private parts. So can you imagine? I, mean, I still occasionally have dreams where I'm back in high school, either in my underwear or naked, going down the halls. I don't, does that happen to any of you? It's not a play. You wake up with cold sweats thinking, oh, my gosh, I'm so glad I'm so many years removed from high school. But here are these guys actively living this exposure and shame and being told to hit the road. So a couple of things here. One is just a note on the shaving of the beard. This is not just cutting across uh, horizontally the length of the beard. This is shaving half the face and emasculating these men in a very um, disrespectful, profoundly shameful way. In fact, history records an incident where some Bedouins who lived near Hebron found a drunken man and shaved off half his beard just in jest, and it led to an all-out war between the two Bedouin tribes because of the disrespect it showed. So this is a big deal, the fact that Hanan did this to these guys. But if that weren't bad enough, he cuts off everything from the hips down and sends them running through the streets of the Ammonites on their way back to Israel. So Hanan has shamed David's men and sent them away exposed, disgraced, and deeply, deeply ashamed of their current condition. But what's the king of Israel's response? What does David do? He sends men to meet them before they get home, and he provides covering for their shame. He tells them to remain at Jericho until the mark of their dignity and their manhood has been restored. And again, there's echoes of Eden here, where the king provides cover for his people's shame and nakedness and provides for their restoration. He takes comfort, he takes care to comfort his people. So this episode continues to show us that David's reign, the king of Israel's reign, will be marked by covenantal faithfulness and fidelity. However, the king will utterly destroy those who meet his loving kindness with rebellion and mockery. So now let's look at verses 6 through 14 and a murderer's theology here. In verse 6, we read that the Ammonites have made themselves stink to David because of what the king did. 
And then we read that the Ammonites have hired various Syrians or Arameans to fight against Israel. I want you to put on your observation hats here and let's examine this passage of scripture. What is shared with us about Israel's enemies right here in verses 6 through 14? Or just the first couple of chapters, verses 6, 7, 8. What details, what facts are we given? We're given numbers, so the number of fighting men. What else? We're given the location, so where they position themselves, but also the locations from where these men and kings hail, right? The kingdoms and lands who have joined the Ammonites. And that's it. Is that a lot of detail if the author is going to report what supposedly is a a pretty significant battle in the life of King David? Wouldn't you expect a little bit more detail than just bare-bones facts? I think so. And uh, Ralph Davis, in his commentary, says this is a very compressed narrative. There's not a lot of detail, especially when it's compared to the details of Hanan's less than hospitable reception of David's men. But a couple of things to note from this passage. First, the locations of the enemy soldiers from where they hail. Beth Rehob is to the north near the tribe of Dan. Zobah is a land of cornfields way to the northeast up in Syria. Ma'akah is in the north between Gesher and Hermon. And then Tob is to the southeast of the Sea of Galilee. So you have different regions represented here coming from far away or close by to help support the Ammonites. And then also notice the size of the reinforcements. 20,000 foot soldiers from two of the kingdoms, 1,000 warriors from Ma'akah, 12,000 men from Tob, and that's in addition to the armies of the Ammonites. Is this a small force? This is, a, this is a pretty big group of guys getting ready to fight a serious battle with Israel. So we need to see that Joab, Abishai, and the Israelite army are actually in a very tough spot. And what makes it worse is how the Arameans and the Ammonites have positioned themselves. So they're attempting a pincer movement. So they're trying to pinch David's forces by coming at them from both sides of their formation, both flanks. So now let's turn to the characters representing Israel in this fight. Who is mentioned by name? Joab and Abishai. Okay. So what do we know about Joab from earlier in Samuel? Is he an upstanding, righteous man? No, this dude's a scoundrel. He is, he is awful. When David showed kindness to Abner to try to reunite Israel, and, and Abner was the commander of Saul's army, David sends him away in peace. Joab calls him back under false pretenses and then murders him in the shadows of the gate at Hebron. And Abishai was a part of that too. So Abishai is in league with Joab, and Joab is a deceptive, murderous, vengeful man. And yet here we have the Lord using this unlikely character, an Israelite, an Israelite thug, really, to impress upon us a deep theological truth. So the details we're given about the battle aren't the main point of the passage. That's why they're so sparse. This compressed narrative serves to shine a spotlight on the little bit of speech that comes from Joab's mouth. So the structure of the text, how the author has written this, allows Joab's words to carry the weight of this passage and really inform where we should be focusing. So what does Joab say to Abishai? Just four parts. If the Syrians are too strong for me, you help me. If the Ammonites are too strong for you, I'll help you. Be of good courage. Let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems right to him. Has there been any word of the Lord included in this text or previously 
that assures Joab of victory? Nothing, no. Has there been any promise of a specific deliverance from the hands of the Syrians or the Ammonites? No, no promise here in the specific. So Joab and Israel are facing a battle without a guaranteed outcome. Joab only has the knowledge of who Yahweh is and what he has done for Israel in the past, and that's it. So let Yahweh do what seems good to him. So just for a minute, I want you to meditate on that phrase, that idea with me. So the narrative of Samuel to this point has provided us with a contrast between Saul and David, between the king like the nations around Israel and the king after God's own heart. And in the last several chapters, we've seen the Lord's anointed king rise up to fight for and defend Israel, to extend mercy and maintain covenantal faithfulness, even to his enemies, and to cover the shame of his people and provide for their restoration. So if David is a man after God's own heart, then we see something of a picture of Yahweh himself when the king is at his best. And we know that Yahweh will rise up to defend his people. We know that Yahweh will fulfill his covenant promises and show loving kindness to those on whom he has set his affection. And he will cover and keep his people, even when his people look like an unfaithful, murderous, deceptive man like Joab. Nothing else is stated after Joab's words other than Joab and his men gather for battle, and we're just told the outcome of the battle. Syria flees, and then the Ammonites aren't far behind in the other direction. So this is a barebone setup, a prophetic word, and then a, just a straightforward statement of victory. And yet, there's still tension in the retelling of the story. So remember the size of the army. Joab, Abishai, and Israel are in a legitimate pickle. They're in a tough spot. And the author wants people, you and me, based on how the author has written this. Joab was not promised delivery. He just knows that God is good and he will do what, is, what seems good to him. None of us are promised specific deliverance or blessings. The Lord doesn't promise us healing when we get the diagnosis of cancer or an autoimmune disease. He doesn't promise us that our marriages will survive the infidelity of a spouse. He doesn't guarantee us success in our business ventures or tell us that we will always see financial gain from the labor of our hands. Nor do we know for certain that children or family members who we love dearly and have wandered from the faith will return to him. So often in this life, the Lord keeps us right in the middle and suspense of verse 12. But he knows the end from the beginning, just as it's told here, and Yahweh will do what he thinks is good, and we know that. Uh, there were several commentators and a couple of pastors who preached on this that pulled in John Calvin at this point, and I think it's helpful to illustrate what's going on here. Calvin, in his commentary on this passage, put it this way. We certainly have this point which should firmly persuade us that God will never abandon us and that in the end he will show that our hope in him was not in vain so that our faith will not be frustrated when it rests upon his mercy and his truth. Nevertheless, we must remain in suspense about many things. For instance, when we ask God for our daily bread, it is not that we are assured that he will send us a good harvest or a great vintage. We should leave that in his hands and patiently await what pleases him. When we have any illness, we must rest well assured that he has not forgotten us and that we have such access to him that in the end, we will feel that he has looked on us in pity. Calvin goes on, We see, therefore, that Joab's uncertainty was not lack of faith, for we can certainly doubt, although we embrace the promises of God and hold them absolutely certain and infallible. 
What we doubt are the things which are not clear to us. That is how he wants us to remain, in suspense about many things, and to leave it all to his secret counsel and his good providence. That's a hard truth, isn't it? It's not easy, and I know you all have been in situations or maybe are going through situations where that's the rule, that's the case. But we know that Yahweh is good, and he is good to his people. In the end, he will have the victory. He has established his anointed king, and he's at work putting all things under his king's feet. And now that's how our passage this morning concludes. So let's look just briefly at verses 15 through 19, the subjection of the nations. So briefly, like I said, Hadadezer was king of Zobah, one of the losing Aramean armies just a couple verses earlier, and he doesn't take kindly to, the, to that first loss in battle. So he calls for the Syrians from beyond the Euphrates. So he's gathering Syrians from all over Syria to come into Judea and fight against Israel. And in response, David gathers all Israel together to meet and fight the Syrians. And David, rather summarily, based on how it's written, delivers a crushing blow to these kings. 700 chariots, 40,000 horsemen, not to mention all the foot soldiers that they must have killed or put to flight, and then Shobak, the commander of their army. And as a result of their defeat, the kings who had come to support Hadadezer made peace with David and became his subjects with fear and trembling. We're told that they were afraid to support the Ammonites after that point. So when we read this passage, verses 15 through 19, if we're familiar with the Psalms, you might find yourself saying, wait a minute, I think this sounds familiar. This sounds like one of the Psalms that gets a lot of play, and that is because you would be correct. You are right. It is an almost exact depiction of Psalm 2. And so given what we read earlier and how this plays out, let me read Psalm 2 to you and, and just listen. It's really almost word for word in terms of idea. So Psalm 2, the reign of the Lord's anointed. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This what we read in 2 Samuel 10 is Psalm 2 in the micro. And do you hear how the language of Psalm 2 describes what played out in chapter 10? The Ammonite and Syrian kings set themselves against Israel's God and his anointed king. And yet the story is told in such a straightforward way that it was foolish to think that these kings would have won. Like, to come to any other conclusion than it's an already foregone conclusion that Israel's king wins is silly. It's ridiculous. The Lord has established his anointed king. He will give the nations to his king, and his anointed will destroy them like a man smashing a clay pot with a rod of iron. And so the kings of Syria, when they see that they are routed, they wise up. When they see that they're defeated, they go and make peace with Israel's king. 
serving him and afraid to serve Israel's enemy any further. But did you catch the last line of Psalm 2? What was that last line? Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Which brings us back to the main point of the passage. Yahweh will do what he thinks is good. Whether it means extending covenantal faithfulness to his enemies, whether it means covering the shame and exposure of his people, whether it means keeping and sustaining his people smack dab in the middle of trials and the tension of this life, or if it means turning away his wrath because those who were once his enemies have all bowed the knee to his reign. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Yahweh will do what he thinks is good. And we see that most clearly in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because what chapters 9 and 10 in 2 Samuel reveal is David at his best. But the next two weeks will reveal David in all of his fallen humanity. Again, as Ralph Davis points out in his commentary, in chapters 9 and 10, David acts kindly and loyally. But in chapters 11 and 12, David makes a mockery of kindness and loyalty. In 9 and 10, David is controlled by his covenants and his memories. But in 11 and 12, David is driven by his desires and secrets. In 9 and 10, David spares and mourns life. But in 11 and 12, David destroys life to preserve his own. So David does reflect something of Yahweh's glory in chapters 9 and 10. But David only points forward to the son who would come after him, Yahweh's son, who would perfectly demonstrate God's covenantal faithfulness, his mercy, his strength, and his victory over all of his and Israel's enemies through his life, death, and resurrection from the grave. So let us give our God thanks that it pleased him to crush King Jesus because Yahweh did what he thought was good, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Let's pray. Most merciful Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are good, and you do what you see is good. And we see that that culminates in sending your Son to die for us, your enemies, to give us life, to restore us, to cover our nakedness and shame, and to be our strength in our times of testing and trial. We thank you for the abundant mercy and goodness that you have poured out on us. Murderers, deceptive, vengeful people, and you've reconciled us to yourself through your son Jesus, our King. Thank you for this, for the gift of your spirit, and for your covenantal faithfulness. You are always faithful, and we praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, what questions do you have? Hopefully you can agree that that passage is a little deeper than it might first appear. And of course, next week, the following couple of weeks, we get into the whole sordid affair with Bathsheba, so I don't think you're going to want to miss that. But thank you for your time.